Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we continue our focus on the COVID-19 crisis in Indonesia by looking at the impacts on workers in Indonesia's informal sector. Across the world, the International Labour Organization has highlighted the significant impacts lockdown policies have had on over a billion informal workers, concentrated in low- and middle-income countries like Indonesia. To discuss how these impacts have differed for informal sector workers compared to those in formal employment, and how the Indonesian government has responded, I'm joined today by Joanna Octavia, Visiting Fellow at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies Indonesia, CSIS, and a PhD candidate at the Warwick Institute for Employment Research. She is the author of a recent CSIS commentary on COVID-19 and informal workers, which we'll link in the episode notes. Today's episode is the latest in the Policy and Focus series of Talking Indonesia episodes, supported by the Knowledge Sector Initiative, or KSI, a partnership between the Australian and Indonesian governments that aims to improve the use of evidence in development policymaking. Policy and Focus episodes appear periodically in alternate weeks to regular Talking Indonesia episodes. Joanna, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, could I start by asking you, how many people work in Indonesia's informal sector and what sort of jobs do they do? Uh, sure. So there are approximately 70 million people working in the informal sector, according to the Central Bureau of Statistics. In terms of occupations, there are pretty spread across sectors and occupations, for example, from domestic work, um, motorcycle taxi drivers, street tailors, etc. Uh, but what is similar between all of these is that their work is not regulated, they're unregistered, and they're not protected by labor legislation. With the sorts of occupations you're describing there, when I think of Indonesia, I probably think of people in cities doing those sort of jobs. Are people in the informal sector mostly located in cities or is this a rural phenomenon as well? Uh, actually, two thirds of the informal um, sector workers are in agricultural. Uh, so the majority of them are in the rural areas. That's interesting. Um, what sort of work would they be doing in rural areas? So these would be something like farm laborers or uh, construction workers. Now. In the commentary you've written for CSIS, you make a distinction between informal sector workers on the one hand and the poor in Indonesia, saying these are overlapping groups, but they're not the same. Could you talk us through that a bit? How much are people in the informal sector working on average and and about what proportion of them would be poor? Sure. I think it's important to note that not everyone working in the informal sector are poor and not everyone who is poor work in the informal sector. So if you take a look at the commentary, uh, I included a segmentation of the informal sector workers. And it's actually pyramid shaped with the majority of the workers are working informally towards the bottom of the pyramid. Um, So from the bottom to the top, their income range from about 20,000 rupiah per day for the day laborers. Which would be about $2 a day. Yes, that is about $2 a day, and that's well below the national poverty line of uh, 1.90 USD per day. Um, it goes up um, as the pyramid goes up to equivalent to the minimum wage, uh, which is about 4.26 million for Jakarta or even more. 
the thing with informal sector workers is that all of them earn very differently and there is no exact data on this because most of their work is unregistered. Um, in terms of the relationship between the poor and the informal sector, there is data on the employment profile of the poor. Um, and these are people who live below the poverty line. They comprise about 9.2% of Indonesians in September 2019. Um, from this figure, almost half of them work in the informal sector and followed by a large proportion of them who are unemployed. So I would say it's about 12 million out of 70 million people working in the informal sector who are poor. That's about 17%. But by the sounds of it, then there'd be another substantial group who might be not far above the poverty line. Yes, and they are very vulnerable because any loss of income or uncertain work prospect could very well pull them um, down below the poverty line. Now, uh, you've mentioned people in the informal sector are doing a very diverse range of work, but they're not governed by formal arrangements in doing that work. I guess thinking about the informal sector prior to this current COVID-19 crisis, if they're not covered by formal arrangements, are they nevertheless integrated into Indonesian government programs and services in any meaningful way? You know, can they access the national universal healthcare program? Do their kids go to school? Do they pay taxes or, or do they really live outside the reach of the government and its services? So starting in um, early 2014, there's actually dedicated social security program for both worker welfare as well as health for uh, a separate program for non-employees. So informal workers with no formal work arrangements would uh, fall under this category. But um, the thing is, from what I know, they have to pay these um, programs independently on a monthly basis. Otherwise, they will not be covered. Regulation-wise, for the health, it is required for all citizens of Indonesia, regardless whether you're an employee or an informal worker, to register for the program. But it is not mandatory, to my knowledge, for the Social Security Program for Worker Welfare. Their registration and their payment are both voluntary and uh, on an independent basis. Um, do you have a sense of how many informal workers do sign up voluntarily for these social security programs? I don't have the data for the health program, but uh, from what I saw for the worker welfare, it's about four to five million that have signed up. So a fairly small proportion of the overall informal sector workforce. Yeah. What about uh, things like accessing education or receiving government payments if they are part of the informal sector who are classified as poor? Yeah, so there are social security programs for those who are poor, but informal workers uh, generally are not treated especially, uh, and it's only if they do fall below the national poverty line that they receive these benefits. In terms of like identity cards or whether their kids can go to school, they are able to access this just as any other Indonesian, uh, unless if there are personal circumstances that prevented them um, from doing so. Now. Taking a global lens, we've seen uh, an agency like the International Labour Organization highlight that the COVID-19 crisis, and in particular the responses that governments have taken to it in the form of lockdowns and other social distancing measures, have had a disproportionate uh, impact on people working in the informal sector. Has that been the case in Indonesia as well? Have we seen very different impacts on people working in the informal sector as a result of this COVID crisis compared to people in formal employment? Yeah, I think in general, both are impacted by loss of income as well as uncertain work prospects. 
Uh, I think both are heavily impacted by the crisis. The difference is whether these impacts are well documented, right? For formal sector, we can see the number of layoffs, uh, for example. Uh, but for impacts on informal workers, it is highly anecdotal from, you know, online motorcycle taxis um, saying that they're earning 80% less uh, than what they usually did to uh, workers like household drivers being told not to return to work after the holidays or uh, informal workers for businesses that are getting terminated because the owners are not sure what their cash flow will look like for the coming months. Um also for informal workers, because of this lack of formal working arrangement, there is no obligation for the business owner to pay for severance, uh, which is what is required in most cases for formal workers. So where they are losing work, it's probably hitting them harder than it would be someone in the formal sector. Yes, that's true. Obviously, in some of Indonesia's large cities, we've also seen the provincial governments issuing work from home directives um, uh, aimed at the formal sector asking companies to have their employees work from home where possible. Um, Do those sort of regulations end up encompassing or impacting people in the informal sector as well? Yes, definitely. I think they are definitely affected by this large-scale social distancing, uh, especially informal workers who work outside. I think changes in consumer behavior, especially consumption patterns and habits, do impact on the income of informal workers. Uh, let's say, for example, motorcycle taxi drivers, right? They lose that bit of income when their regular customers stay at home and no longer commute to work. Or even changes in consumption habits with food, for example, uh, when consumers choose to cook instead of ordering food deliveries for hygiene purposes. All of these have impacts to the income of informal workers. Now, I understand from your work that a lot of these informal workers are migrants to uh, large cities like Jakarta and Surabaya. Um, do we have a sense of facing those sort of impacts on their income, are they choosing to remain in the large cities or or have a lot of uh, informal workers migrated back to the uh, smaller urban centres or rural areas where they're originally from? We did see a trend of migrant informal workers going back to their hometowns um, around end of March, April-ish, before the large-scale social distancing was implemented. I think one factor could be also this loss of income leading to the inability to pay for rent. Uh, I think a lot of informal workers who come from other places uh, rent a room in boarding houses or even rent like a flat, which they can't afford to pay if they're not generating any income. Now, you mentioned when it comes to social security in normal times that uh, informal workers have only been covered if they happen to be poor uh, rather than there being specific programs for informal workers themselves. How has that played out in the Indonesian government's assistance packages for Indonesians in the context of the COVID-19 crisis? Um, Has there been any specific assistance extended to people in the informal sector or do they only uh, receive assistance if they fulfill some other set of criteria? They are lumped with um, the poor and the very poor for social assistance. So we did see some news reports saying that there will be dedicated help for them, but uh, so far it hasn't materialized. Do you have a sense of what sort of assistance someone in the informal sector might have been receiving from the Indonesian government since this COVID-19 crisis began? Yes, they have the uh, special social assistance, for example, in the form of uh, sambako, which is food stuff. They also have cash uh, through the program Florga Harapan. And there's also a pre-work card, uh, Kartu Prakerja, which is a scheme that provides 
funding for training. And I mean, on that pre-work card, uh, it's blown up as quite a contentious issue in Indonesia because uh, some of the training providers also held jobs within the administration. Um, there's also been criticisms that the training is often insubstantial. Is this an appropriate form of assistance to people in the informal sector to help them through the, the COVID-19 crisis? Uh, I think yes and no, because the informal sector, as, as we discussed before, it's very diverse. So they do come from different backgrounds, uh, various educational levels, etc. In my research of online motorcycle taxi drivers, I have come across drivers who have successfully been enrolled in the program. Um, but I did have in initial doubts about um, using this program as one of the assistance for informal workers impacted by COVID. Uh, because when it was first designed, the pre-work card was designed for the young urban unemployed in the younger age range, so 18 to 24 years old. Um, then the programs that were designed had that demographic in mind. Um, I did worry that expanding the beneficiary base would actually blur the objectives of the upscaling in certain industries. Um, so I do worry whether the program will achieve what it um, set out to do. Uh, so most of the trainings that um, are most popular relate to entrepreneurship and freelance work. Uh, the most popular training package is a training package dedicated for online motorcycle taxi drivers, which kind of give us a sense of the beneficiary base. So I think it's not a bad thing for informal workers to learn about entrepreneurship, uh, freelance work, given that most of them are used to the flexibility. But in my experience, um, trainings on entrepreneurship they have to be accompanied by other things, uh, things like mentorship, being in a group setting and funding uh, in order to work effectively. So I do worry about the efficacy of this initiative. Hearing that sort of description where you're providing entrepreneurship and you've had uh, sort of a large uptake of this course designed for online motorcycle taxi drivers, it sounds like the pre-work card is mostly aimed at making people better at the sort of job they're already doing rather than shifting them from the sort of work they've been doing to something different? Would that be right? Not really, because I think when I took a look at the content, it does teach you things like how to manage your finances, looking for other gig work aside from what you're doing right now. So it is giving people ideas of options, other options or avenues to pursue. Yeah, but it's largely based on like earning this side gig income to last them through the coronavirus period. And you've mentioned informal workers are a very diverse group. Is it nevertheless possible to make some sort of overall statement that uh, the government has catered to them equally as well as formal sector workers, uh, not as well or, or better? How have they fared during this COVID-19 crisis? I think in terms of assistance, if they are considered as poor, very poor, they do receive the similar kind of assistance. But I think a lot of them are in unique positions. For example, like we discussed earlier, how uh, many of them are migrants. Um, so their circumstances are a bit unique in which they have to rent their uh, living space for uh, most cases, right? And they're losing income, so they don't have money to pay for rent. But the subsidy that the government is providing, for example, uh, things like electricity doesn't really relate to them because what they're needing is funds for shelter, for example. So I think I think the government is taking the initiative to provide assistance, but it's just not tailored to their uh, specific conditions. Does that mean they're vulnerable in, in different ways to what someone in the formal sector might be? I would say so, yeah. Could you talk us through that a bit? Well, I think the biggest thing about informal sector workers is the lack of formal working arrangements, which means that 
you know, any loss of income is very precarious for them. And also because they have uncertain work arrangements. Uh, you could come in today uh, and then have your employer say to you, oh, you don't need to come in again tomorrow and we'll, we're going to stop paying you today. Uh, whereas at the informal sector, as difficult as it is for a lot of people right now, um, you still have that guarantee of severance pay. You are also able to join unions, for example, who can fight for your rights. Uh, but I think for informal workers, they don't have that kind of privilege at all. Sure. Now, in your commentary for CSIS, you highlight the issue of assembling a database of informal sector workers uh, as something of a priority. Could you talk us through that? I mean, what data does exist on who informal sector workers are and what circumstances they're in? And uh, what might a new database look like? Sure. I think the database that exists right now is not specific to informal workers, right? It's uh, with the Ministry of Social Affairs. It's the um, the beneficiaries for social assistance, for example. So it's not dedicated especially for informal sector workers. The databases that we currently have are pretty fragmented. It depends on the organization who compiles them. So there are um, grassroots organizations, for example, like the Urban Poor Consortium who have engaged informal workers in the past and they have data on the on the people and families they've engaged. Um, you also have platform companies, for example, like Grab and Gojek. They do have the database of the drivers that have signed up with them. Of course, you have the Social Security Workers Welfare database for the non-employee uh, scheme. That's another database that has existed as well. The problem with all these databases is that they're all fragmented and they are under the jurisdiction of each agency or organization and they're not consolidated. So my proposal is to actually combine all these databases together for ease of tracking and also to enable the government or the private sector to redeploy informal workers into essential jobs. Um, they are of productive age, most of them. And I think having this database would enable this redeployment to become easier. Another way is there are a lot of organizations who do want to help informal workers in some way. And the problem is like, there's no single database or open database. They don't know how to contact them, how to locate them. And I think having a database would help in that aspect. So, I mean, you've mentioned different government agencies, different private entities hold little fragments of data on informal sector workers. Uh, how would that become an overall database? Would it be a matter of combining those? Um, would you start from scratch? Uh, and uh, what sort of agency would be responsible for doing that? Sure. I think, first of all, we... We do need to explore the classification options for the different groups of informal workers, given that they are very diverse. So I think the first step would be to you know, identify the employment models for every occupation. For example, for domestic workers, you have uh, domestic workers who are directly salaried by a household. You have those who come in for the day and employed by multiple households, etc., or even those who, who secure work through the platforms. So I think it's important to understand these differences um, so that we can map out the obligations of every stakeholder towards the worker. Uh, in terms of collecting the existing information, I think we need to consolidate the databases. Uh, we need to use just one one string of numbers, the ID, uh, which I think should be the KTP. The uh, identity card, that is. Yeah, identity card number. Um, because if you signed up for things like the BPJS, the Social Security Welfare, uh, Workers' Welfare, you do need to input your KTP number. So I think we have to like base it on one uh, string of 
numbers because it's a bit complicated if you have like different numbers for different agencies. I mean, when you talk about redeploying workers uh, in the context of the COVID-19 crisis, it, it makes it sound that like this database would be something you're proposing to be assembled pretty much immediately. Is there an agency in Indonesia that would have the capacity to put together such a database uh, under the current crisis circumstances? Yeah, I think um, going back to the previous question as well, when you asked about who would be responsible for it, I think we do need to get to a place where um, there is only one national database with single identity number. Um, and the maintenance of this database needs to be under one ministry or one agency or one office only um, to avoid like extensive verification and, and so on. Um, I think in terms of which office to do so, I'm afraid I don't have an answer for that, but I, I do think you need a dedicated task force for this project. Sure. And I mean, one of the data sources you mentioned in your commentary is Indonesia's national census, um, which I understand was due to be conducted this year. Do you have a sense of whether that's likely to go ahead, given the current social distancing measures put in place as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, there is no news or updates about that yet. Uh, but even if it is to be implemented, I do think that it has to be online wherever possible. Uh, but for places where it is not possible to do so, I think um, you do need to take care about the social distancing measures that need to be done uh, when you collect this information. I can certainly see the merits in what you're describing in a consolidated database um, based on one identifier for each person. Nevertheless, you know, in an Indonesian context, we heard in a recent Talk Indonesia episode at the Yumna at Smeru describing how slow it is whenever the government seeks to update its social protection database, um, because each time you collect new data, the validation and verification processes are very slow. Again, I guess looking that we're in the midst of a crisis, is this a feasible task for the government to undertake within the time frame that it would need to? I think for the short term, especially during this COVID crisis, you could do pilot projects. So try it out with a city or a province to measure how much time is required for uh, that project to be completed. But in terms of consolidating a national database, I do foresee that this would be an ongoing project. So you could run those pilot projects and you started to have uh, a better set of data on informal sector workers. Um, what sort of interventions would that enable in the, in the context of COVID-19? So informal workers are still working with the exception of poor elderly who still needs to work to generate income to sustain themselves. So most informal workers are of productive age. So in, in the short term, this database could be used to redeploy workers into essential roles, um, especially since consumption habits are changing, um, behavior is changing. So we could target industries that are growing, for example, like e-commerce, right? So these would include things like deliveries, uh, warehousing, also as customer service roles that can be done remotely. Any other interventions that having this database might enable? Yeah, there's also NGOs, CSOs, as well as individuals who are keen on assisting informal workers in the sense of creating job opportunities from them or even providing social assistance. And I think this database could be used for that purpose. But of course, I think privacy would be a concern here. So the kind of data that I think organizations can view uh, would also have to be analyzed and discussed given these concerns. Now, I mean, to shift course a little bit, you have, uh, you know, in the course of our conversation, highlighted the different nature of the vulnerabilities, the protections that informal sector workers have compared to formal sector workers. And 
in Australia, we're, we're a bit further along the path of responding to COVID-19 at the moment than Indonesia with, I guess, the prevalence of the virus suppressed for the moment. Uh, we're starting to have a debate about the long-term nature of work, um, whether as we seek to come out of the economic impacts that COVID-19 has caused, we simply return to the same economic settings that we had previously, or we take this as an opportunity to think about whether we need to change the sorts of conditions under which people work and the sort of protections they have. Do you anticipate any similar discussion taking place in Indonesia, or in fact, is it already taking place uh, in the light of the vulnerabilities that this COVID-19 crisis has exposed for various workers in Indonesia about the nature of work in the future? Yeah, so I do think the pandemic has really showed us the vulnerabilities of the labor market and how various countries, including Australia that you mentioned earlier, are handling these issues, right? And we see in countries like Singapore and the UK, for example, self-employed workers can apply for relief, last them through a few months. Uh, we don't see anything like that in Indonesia, as far as I know. In terms of the world of work, there is a lot of talk about reforming social protection right now. Especially if we look at the social security for worker welfare for non-employees. Uh, we mentioned earlier that they have to register, they pay the monthly fees independently, and the coverage does not include loss of income, right? And I think this is one area where the government could explore other mechanisms for social protection, especially considering that 55% of the Indonesia's workforce is in the informal sector, and they are vulnerable to uh, events such as this pandemic, for instance. I think uh, going forward, right, there is an interest in social protection that is attached to the individual instead of the work that they do uh, as how it is right now so that workers can move freely across sectors and industries. And I think that could be one option, especially considering how prevalent new forms of work is in this country, for example, platform work. Even before the COVID-19 crisis struck, uh, we saw in Indonesia this discussion of uh, so-called omnibus laws, which are seeking to revise a whole raft of regulations on the terms on which people are employed, on taxation and the like. Uh, is, is this also likely to be an opportunity to address the position of the informal sector? Yeah, so uh, I'm under the impression that omnibus law is more concerned with uh, creating jobs as a whole, uh, not really specific for the interests of informal sector. But one thing that stood out uh, I think is the relaxation of outsourcing whereby outsourcing institutions can hire workers for various tasks, including freelancers. Um, I think this does mean that there are more industries where informal workers could uh, possibly work at. But the problem with this kind of flexibility in the labor market is that it has to also be accompanied by adequate social protection. There is a talk about the unemployment insurance, which I think it is a good idea to implement for informal workers who are essentially employed full-time but without formal working arrangements. Um, but, you know, for this to actually apply to them, they, they do need to have that contract with their, like, so-called employers. And, I mean, are there organisations or groups in Indonesia taking up these informal sector interests in the discussions on legislation that we're seeing at the moment? Or are these sort of proposals ultimately unlikely to, to end up being enacted in law? I think for organizations that are uh, supporting informal workers, so you have the Urban Poor Consortium and all, uh, they do uh, work on the livelihoods. I think that some of them also push for legislations, but I think so far from what I see, the ones who are very active and vocal about the omnibus law would be the ones supporting uh, formal sector workers. Finally, you've 
outlined a whole range of vulnerabilities that people in the informal sector are facing as a result of COVID-19, a number of steps that the government and other organisations have taken. But if you could highlight just one priority uh, for the coming months of the COVID-19 crisis, when we think about the position of people in the informal sector, what, what would that be? I think I would like to highlight the, um, the pilot project for the national database that is being proposed. I think it is very important to start with a pilot first to measure whether this is a feasible solution. And also another thing is that it could help with measuring the time that we need in order to compile a database for a specific region. And, you know, this database could then be used for redeployment of workers into essential roles. It could also assist organizations or individuals wishing to provide uh, social assistance for former workers to be able to reach them in a much easier way. And I think that is for the short term, but for the longer term, you know, as I discussed in the commentary, I think there needs to be a re-evaluation and revision of the law on manpower to include informal workers. I think state recognition and support is uh, very important to ensure their protection in times such as this. Now, Joanna, there's a whole lot more I could ask you, um, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. It's been great. Thanks, Dave, for having me. That was Joanna Octavia, visiting fellow at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies Indonesia, CSIS, and a PhD candidate at the Warwick Institute for Employment Research. Keep an eye out for the Policy in Focus tagline for future instalments in the Policy in Focus series of Talking Indonesia. Policy in Focus episodes are edited by Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Param and appear periodically in alternate weeks to regular Talking Indonesia episodes. Don't forget, of course, you can find the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Talking Indonesia returns on 4 June with my co-host Dr. Charlotte Setiadi. Until then, this has been the Talk Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.